couple members of the Randy Newman fandom discussing one of his songs at random, followed by another that's a cover. It's Wheel of Randy. Jump on our boards, cause the boards are hot. We're going to the Olympics and we're going nonstop. Rock and roll all the way. Hey, welcome back to Wheel of Randy, your favorite Randy Newman podcast. We are part of the Good Trash Media Network. And let's start the show! It's Wheel of Randy! Folks, we've got David Wild here today. Thanks for coming, David. My pleasure, I think. We'll find out. <laughs> David has been uh, in, in the uh, music journalism business for, for quite a while now. Uh, and, not, not, and, just, just, to, just so we can do correcting right away. Yeah. I'm really not a music journalist anymore. I, that's what I was for, you know, but 20 years ago, I really became a, a TV writer and producer. So oh, I, okay. I, started, I started out at Rolling Stone, but... Uh, uh, I managed to uh, be in journalism when it paid well, and uh, about twenty I've years. Heard, ago, I've heard rumors. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when it was when and you had to write a letter to the editor to for someone to yell at you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, about actually twenty. It, it it actually involves Randy. But twenty years ago, uh, I fell into TV, and I still do some journalism. But truthfully, I'm I yeah. I, so people, I don't want to mislead people. I'm not. I, I'm very happy. I'm a recovering journalist, but I'm a uh, uh, let's see. I'm nominated for an Emmy right now, and I'm I just won a daytime Emmy. So I'm I'm really just an award-winning bullshit artist. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I, let's jump right into that. Uh, talk about your early TV. I know that you had uh, that show on Bravo that involved Randy. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, what happened was uh, about. It all, yeah, my life really took a turn around 2001. Uh, I mean, I, a lot of people's life took a turn in 2001, but uh, uh, I was, um, when 9-11, I had, I had basically, there was a Rolling Stone TV show, um, like an interview show where I got to meet a producer named Joel Gallon. And uh, after that happened, he started calling me to write jokes for, award shows like the MTV awards, those sort of things. And so oh, I did, a little, I did a little of that for a few years, but in 2001, uh, Joel uh, was the executive producer of the uh, tribute to heroes, America tribute to heroes, the telethon that was on every network and raised. Oh yeah. yeah. Million dollars. And he had, because he, I had written for him and he knew I could write not just jokes, but serious things. He asked me to be the head writer for that. And that won the Peabody award and that won Emmys and that uh, got a lot of attention. And even though it was something I did for nothing, you know, and uh, it ended up changing my life because everyone started. And around that time, just previous to that, I'd been asked to help on the Grammys, writing the script for the Grammys by Ken Ehrlich. And literally, so 20 years ago, all this stuff sort of happened to force me thankfully into being in television as opposed to journal just journalism Mm -hmm. and uh oh but so joel was hired at one point to executive produce a show for bravo called musicians and he hired me to be a producer writer for that and then he i think quit the show for various reasons and at a certain point the bravo people called me and when we were when joel and i were talking about the show i think he was talking about elvis costello or Steve Van Zant being the host. This is 20 years ago of an interview show. And then the Bravo people called me and said, we think we want you to audition to host. And I was like, me? Like I had been in charge of finding a host and even I hadn't suggested me as egomaniacal as I clearly am. Didn't pull a Dick uh, Cheney on them. No, exactly. Or or, or or the Jeopardy Jeopardy. Exactly. I did not do either of those things. But uh, I guess they had seen footage of me with Don Henley uh, that I, Don had invited me down to Texas to do film something with them. And they said, we saw you making Don Henley laugh. And anybody who can make Don Henley laugh should host our show. So, uh, but one of the guests on the first, there were only two seasons uh, because uh, Bravo was bought by NBC and they went and they sort of went into the queer eye for the straight guy. And I was clearly way too macho for that. No, that's not true. But in any case, 
uh, Joel um, left, and then I ended up becoming the host, which was a very unique experience. And one, I you know, I got it's twenty years later. I, I I should think about it or write about it or do something about it. But one of the thrills was uh, I got to make as the producer and as a producer writer host type. I had a lot of pull about who I wanted and the person the people I most wanted were actually uh like Randy Newman who I worshiped and uh Elvis Costello they both were on and I think uh Randy may have and uh but Randy may have been or I think was easily the best guest and uh I think I had written liner notes for him maybe right around that time they had reissued a lot of the classics uh Good Old Boys, you know, a few of the early obvious masterpieces uh, I wrote some liner notes for. And when we wrote, when I wrote those, the way I did it was I would call him at home and he would inevitably go to the piano and he would start answering and playing, like literally providing a score for my interview. And it was like a, a wet dream for a Randy Newman fan. And interestingly, when we had him on the show, this is like the first days of a new show of a show that only went, you know, I think 12 episodes, but uh, 12 great episodes, I will say somewhat arrogantly. And, uh, but the best episode was Randy because I said, listen, having interviewed this guy, I just need to get him to a piano. We had like the way the set worked was we had two chairs, two incredibly expensive chairs that they had to deconstruct because we found out very quickly that my legs didn't touch the ground. On it. And, and, and this is, a, this is a true story. And this also is very relevant to Randy because I always, I think the first thing I said to him on the show was fuck you for short people, but I am a short person. And, but thanks to the show, I found out why I'm short because they had paid, I think they had paid $20, $20,000 each for our two chairs for the host and the guest. And when I got there and my feet didn't touch the ground, they brought in a chair consultant, which I did not know was a job. But apparently when you spend $20,000 on a chair, you have access to a chair consultant. And this chair, this middle-aged, or who am I to say that now? But he was like an older guy, came in, he looked at the chairs, he had me sit in it, and he goes, you know why you're short? And I was like... Uh, I think because my parents were short and they had sex and then I'm short. And uh, he said, no, no, you're short because you have almost no space between your knee and the ground. He goes, your upper leg is normal. You just got a really short bottom of leg. And I, so now I know that it didn't really help me. You know, I, 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 I'm still short, but I now know why. Uh, I now know why I'm mad at Randy Newman for that song. Um, but yeah, Randy was, oh, so they didn't want me to, I said, let's just do the Randy show, me standing, he's at the piano and I'm just standing with him. Let's do it that way. And they said, no, no, we spent all the money on the chairs. We need to establish the chairs. So if you ever could see that show, which I'm sure is very hard to see, but I've been trying of, to find it. I, oh, it's, it's, I have to say not because of me, because of Randy, it's amazing. And it was, it was uh, received as such. I have to, but I don't have a copy, so I can't share it with you. I think I gave it to my agent uh, and it never got it back. Um, but in it, in any case, what I did was I said, like, Randy, welcome to musicians. Let's go to the piano. So literally we were at the chairs for like 10 seconds and then we went to the piano and he was amazing. In fact, this is all coming back to me now. The same day we did Randy, we did Elvis Costello, which oh is like, gosh. that's like, and, and the way it, cause it was such a, it was done in Sony studios in New York, incredibly expensive, beautiful, sonically perfect production but to make it financially viable at least for a little while you had to do two episodes I never hosted anything and I hosted I think that might have been my first day the two of them in one day uh and so uh the truth is Elvis went is a Randy fan yeah I know he covered uh I've been wrong before yeah yeah he went to the episode to watch me interview uh, uh Randy first and Randy was so friggin' great that the first like 25 minutes of Elvis were kind of stilted because he was like, I don't know how to follow this guy. Like, <laughs> you know, you shouldn't have Randy Newman as your opening act. In the end, that was a really great episode too. But Randy was a dream guest. And I remember I asked his manager and asked Randy, they had a fly to New York and they had nothing. I don't think, I don't think they were promoting anything. He just, 
came in, he did it for me, uh, and he was fantastic. And uh, uh, years later, I had asked Randy to come in for another show I was doing, not not to interview him, but to perform in honor of someone. And I think uh, I did something stupid, like the I didn't let I, I think I was told not to let him know that the person he was honoring wasn't going to be there. <laughs> so I think I don't know if he's I, I got a feeling Randy could write a song about I used to like this guy, but uh, not so much anymore. You know, that would be his song. I haven't talked to him in many years, but I did. He was the most entertaining, charming interview subject as opposed to me. I, I love how he's he's able to be extemporaneous like that. Uh, did you hear the stories of of his concert at Newport a couple of weeks no. ago? No. Um, apparently, uh, one of the yachts in the background kept leaning on its horn while he was performing, and he changed the key of his song to match the horn. That's amazing. <laughs> no, he's that's that's what my instinct was when interviewing him. As long as he has. If he has a piano, he can literally musically adjust to anything he wants. He also, there were things he said to me that were just so fascinating. And one of them that stood out, and I think Elvis, I think I talked to Elvis about it that same day later, was because we talked about humor in music. And because the song I chose is probably one of the, it's not one of the funny ones at no. all. No. It's it's one of the heartbroken ones. And I think he said something to me and I he didn't say it ironically the way someone like Morrissey might. He said, yes, I was able to put humor in my music. And he goes, it may not have been a good idea. It's not really what pop music was meant to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, he goes, he goes, it may have been a mistake. He he had a way of talking about his career that was so wonderfully detached that like uh I do remember uh, him also like saying to me something like, thank God I wasn't any better as a musician because then I'd be broke. He goes, if I, if I, if I had a slightly better hands, I would have been a classical pianist and I would have made half this much a year and I'd be playing in, you know, some orchestra and not and barely scratching by as opposed to being, you know, pissed off in the Hollywood Hills like, like me right now. <laughs> and him uh yeah but i i i will say that one of the funny things about that musicians episode was we talked about him not winning an oscar at that point he had was like susan lucci uh in not winning oscars uh the way she was with emmys and way i was until like a few weeks ago i finally i've lost like six times seven times and i finally won one like a few weeks ago right. but he had never won and we went he went on this and on. was 2001 yeah 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 and, that and, tracks okay yeah. yeah and then um uh in between when the episode was taped and when uh we aired it he won and i i happened to i believe this might have been the is this the it was also the anniversary of the worst Oscars in history, which I worked on. And I guess he must, I, I, I worked on a few in terms of the, the main show. That was the main show, but also the red carpet. In any case, I was backstage when he won his Oscar. I was like working on the show in some way. And I happened to be the first person he saw when he walked off. And he was like, uh, he, he gave me some, I can't remember the exact thing, but he was funny even in that moment. Like, and that to me is the ultimate measure of like, I, I love any legend who can put you down. I think he might've said something. Wow. This show, huh? You know, kind of like, a body <laughs> danger field. and like, I had the same thing uh, when uh, I got engaged 28 years ago, seven years ago to my wife uh, that um, uh, it was, we, it happened to be just around the time, the day that um, Tom Hanks won his Oscar for Philadelphia and we happened to go, both my now wife and I went to uh, the Elton John Oscar party. Just I was like covering it, but uh, I guess I was allowed to bring her. But we happened to be at the entrance when Tom Hanks walked in with his Oscar and he stopped and goes, David, how are you? I go, not as good as you, but I did just get engaged. And he went, uh, David, congratulations, Fran, you could have done so much better. <laughs> anybody who can in their oscar moment still put you down that's sweet wow. oh gosh um yeah i i wanted to, to talk to you about the grammys because i knew you were involved with them for for so long and you know even though i'm i'm not 
I don't keep up with with you know top forty as much as I used to. And I know top forty is a different animal these days. Yeah, you don't I, keep up with Casey Kasem as much as you used to. Yeah, yeah. Well, Casey, <laughs> it's hard uh, to keep up with Casey. I still make a point to watch the Grimms. Uh, yeah. Even even if it's me as Thank an you. old man grumble, grumbling about them, I, 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 I still really enjoy it because it's like, okay, at least I can have some semblance of what's going on today. Yeah, well, I will tell you, it's this is my uh, 20th year. Yeah, this, uh, this, this year was my 20th year working on the show. And it's interesting. It's the same thing for me in a certain way. In particular the music industry has been through so much that one of the things I've always loved, A, my family, my wife and my kids have traditionally come to the show. It's the only show where like they almost never have missed, but this, and and also the music industry, there's so many, the music industry has changed so much. So many people are gone that like the Grammy night was always a night where backstage you were with artists from every genre and executives from every genre and publicists and, you know, arrangers and all and it was like a reunion every year of the people who were still around and you got to like make sure you connect this year because of covid it was like there was almost it was the most intimate grammys in history and i think in a weird way became very special as a result i think uh ben winston who was the executive producer and the whole team really did a really good job of making trying to make find some advantage in that deficit you know that uh, it was and, and making artists watch, not making, but having a setup where artists could watch one another. And that yeah. was sort of community. It created it, the community of music in a different way. It, re- it really had a nice, intimate feel to it uh, that, that some some of the other, you know, some of the other awards were, were, were lacking, that they were uh, it was it was not as awkward. It, it felt like it had more natural flow. So, well, thank you. And I, I, I won't take much credit for that, but the the it was an amazing undertaking it was done a lot of the production for months other than going to film a few of those interviews with artists most of it was we were on zoom like every day the producing team on that and it was amazing what you could do how much communication you could get across it was sort of you know three months of zooms but one of the crazy moments was uh if you notice the show was featuring a lot it was very young Grammys. Usually the Grammys have a mix of old and, but there were a lot of older artists who were afraid to partake for the presentations. There were only, you know, a certain amount of awards. Well, actually there were the usual amount of awards given or maybe one more, but uh, there was no one, we had no one set to give out the last award. And I, uh, I was asked to reach out to Ringo because I, as I, I suggested, I said, well, it's always good to have a beetle in the house. And, uh, and I have done, a, I had recently helped Ringo with a book that like a month before that, a book he put out at the end of the year about the all-star band. Uh, and I've worked with him for many years. So I wrote him like a Jerry Maguire letter on why I wanted him to come. And it was written on Sunday night at like two in the, or in the middle of the night on Sunday for the next Sunday saying, please, would you come? And I sort of laid out, because at that point, we weren't telling anyone where the Grammys were. Like it was... Mm-hmm for you know for we we were sort of trying to it was pretty much kept a secret because of for different reasons and uh i said listen basically you'll you could leave at your house at seven i know where you live so i was like you could leave your house come to the convention center parking lot see me hand out a grammy be back home by you know an hour later whatever i i sort of tried to make it explain what it was so that night, I'll never forget, he got there, and I get this message, like, they want me to get out of the car. He, in his, because things were so crazy, and still are in many ways, but at that moment, so crazy, he kind of thought I meant it was like a drive-through uh, vaccination. <laughs> he could hand out a Grammy from his car and keep going. I was like, no, no, you need to step up the steps of the convention center, and then we'll, you know, then step on the stage, and and uh, it was actually an amazing moment because he came out and he goes, well, and I think because he thought that he didn't get that dressed up. But so he walked out, he goes, I think I'm too casual. And he was with Barbara Bach, his wonderful and glamorous wife. And she was like, no, you look great. And I said, no, you look fantastic, which was true. But also I was saying because I was trying to get him on stage because like there was literally like a few tables, but it's Beyonce and Billie Eilish and her and all these, you know, people and uh 
he walked out and my wife who normally would be there and my sons, I think they both, I think, no, my wife texted me and said, Ringo looks amazing. So then I showed that to Barbara Bach and then he's on stage. He gives out the award and social media, because he did look great. You know, he looks so young. That was the big trend of the night was Ringo is 80 because he looked so great. And so like, by the time he walked off stage, I could show him, here's what my wife said. And here's what social media, here's where you're trending. And it's like, this in the in this crazy world of the last year and a half, it was like a high point because it felt like somehow it all worked. You know, it was it was special. Let me ask you, and I know this is the only chance I'm ever going to get, so I'm going to take it. So, some advice for some Grammy advice for someone like me that follows the more obscure awards. Uh, I I always follow the comedy and the folk and and the bluegrass and some of the gospel awards, and it's like. I see the results online, but there's really no drama to it. Oh, well, this year, and this year they did, that was the whole, the the pre-tell, as it used to be called, but Mm. it now has another name, and it's really, I think it's, to your point, it's being the Academy, the Recording Academy has tried to give it its own attention, and they did a real full show with a host that you could see online. Uh, so you could follow every award. I will say the comedy award has been a, there've been, there were like two things I wanted to do that I finally got done, you know, or helped get done on the Grammys in the last couple of years. The first was the first best new artist was Bob Newhart, who I happen to love Bob Newhart. And I've always wanted him to present the award. And like like three years ago, I got to do it. He agreed to do it. And then Alessia Cara, who had won it the previous year. So it's him. It's like, you know, it's like the age difference was like 70 years between our two presenters. And we, and I got to write a joke with Bob Newhart, which my wife happened to be backstage and took a photo of us like sitting talking, which is like my favorite photo of all time, because I I grew up, I don't know if you grew up loving him, but I grew up loving him. And then I've always wanted the comedy award presented. And when we were in New York, just a couple of years ago, um, it was actually an amazing and I'll stop talking about anything that's not Randy Newman as soon as I say this, but uh, it was like this thing where I really wanted to, the, the nominees were like Chappelle and Jerry Seinfeld and we're in New York. So I said, we should, you know, give this award out. It's great to give on the main show. Let's just do it. And we didn't have the right presenter. And I had suggested because we were heading to New York. It's only the second time I've done the show for 20 years. It's only been in New York two of those years. So I had suggested Trevor Noah, because I'm a fan of Trevor Noah, sure. who was hosting a show there. And we were told his publicist that he's not available. He's in Florida. So on the flight to New York, the Sunday before, again, like a week earlier uh, that year, I get on the plane and uh, I'm actually with my nephew, who's a big manager of a, a musician, uh, uh, he actually manages Ben Platt, who has a new record out today when we're talking. So go buy his record. But in any case, he said, do you want to sit together? I go, no, no, it's fine. So I ended up, I said, well, we'll, we'll be together a lot. So uh, on the flight, I just went with the seat I had. And it turned out, look, I look at the guy who's next to me, it's Trevor Noah. Ah. So, and as much as I'm a name dropper and love, you know, celebrity in my work life, I don't like to bother people like, you know, when they're, relaxing I don't want to ruin someone's flight so even though I'm a fan I sort of didn't bother him and then about halfway through the flight, I'm watching a football game because there's like live tv and he starts we start talking and I say as we're like pulling into New York like a half an hour into before we land I said listen Trevor I don't want to bother you but I I'm a big fan of yours I you know I read your book I watch your show and I had asked that you present this Sunday at the next Sunday at the Grammys and he went what (laughs) <laughs> no one had told him about that report. Like I know he wasn't faking it. And he, he immediately said, he goes, he goes, I am in Florida. He goes, but I'm in Florida because I'm doing a gig on Friday night. And then I was going to just take the weekend there, but I will fly home early to present a comedy, the comedy award at the Grammys. And uh, so he was like, we, the plane landed and he's sending a note to his publicist, like, why the hell did you tell me this? And I'm sending it to the Grammy saying, don't book anyone else for comedy. And it's just ironic that, you know, that was a great experience. Working with him was a delight. And then he ended up 
uh, hosting this year, which was also a delight. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a funny world when you present a comedy award. Very good. I, well, you know, if you can't get PDQ Bach, then I guess Trevor Noah's a good second choice. You're dating yourself with that. I haven't heard PDQ Bach in quite, is Peter Schickel, is that his name? Something I think that's like his that. real name. Is he alive? I, I would book him if he's alive. I, I don't know. I but I know he got that award what five years in a row. <laughs> oh yeah, those those that was before even my time. That's yeah. more than twenty years ago. So I I do know. Yeah, I've been there for uh, a long time, but not that long. Well, before we get to Randy, I've got one more general music question. Um, yeah, this is a segment we call Second Chances. Our pod is a pod of second chances. Yes, uh, I started this podcast because I am only a fan of Randy once I gave him a second chance. You know, I knew, you know, just the basics, you know, growing up and didn't really give so much thought to him. But once I gave him a second chance and really dove deep into it, um, mm-hmm. I, I started appreciating. It. So, you know, my question is, who is an artist that people have heard of that they need to go back and give a second chance to? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, one that... I think I heard maybe someone reference on your show and it's, I tweeted, I think you saw, I tweeted last night that I was doing this. Yeah. And really interesting. Yeah. People are guessing what the the song is today. Right. And well, one of the people who guessed was Neil Diamond's wife, uh, Katie Diamond. I was wondering who that was because she was mentioning Neil. Yes. (laughs) Oh no. And that's, that's actually uh, Neil's, former, well, current, actually, manager, but also wife, uh, who wow. I've known both of them forever. Neil Diamond is an example of an artist who I, you know, and and by the way, like his version of I Think It's Gonna Rain Today is unbelievably great. And he did, uh, she was mentioning some of the more recent covers that uh, Neil has done of Neil, uh, I'm sorry, of Randy. Um, I think Feels Like Home and uh, was it Losing You. In any case, like there's an, there've been artists, like I tend to be the one who loves and has in, in Rolling Stone for many years defended like pop geniuses who there were like the Bee Gees, I was always a huge fan of, and now they've been totally rediscovered. Mm-hmm. Neil Diamond went through that with the uh, Rick Rubin records a little bit, but, you know, uh, and so, I, and I, even Brian Wilson, there was a time when I got to Rolling Stone where like, you know, I've seen, you see the evolution of what endures. So it's like, I, I will say that like, like this audience for your podcast might think, I don't want to hear Neil Diamond do Randy Newman, but like, I think, it, I think it's going to rain today is one of my favorite covers. I love yeah. it. I think he really, he nails it. I, now, interestingly, you, I know, feature covers on your show. Yeah. I think the funny thing is with, with the song I chose, he's gone at it different ways. And like a lot of his catalog, these sort of songbook records, sometimes you know what he wants in the song because he sort of gives you that in the end. Yeah, like, we're definitely talking about that. Oh no, and so, actually the, the song I chose, which I, I won't reveal yet, but it was interesting. Once I chose it, I realized this song was covered by like a guy I know uh, and one of, and the first group I ever saw in concert, it was covered by maybe my favorite singer of all time, who I never met. But like I was gonna, it's like I know. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting the sort of reach of Newman. Like despite it, and, and uh, I just noticed that my Zoom background has you know Frank Sinatra uh, behind me here, not the real Frank. He's he's on he's booked, but uh, this Frank Sinatra and like. It, when I looked at that, the Zoom background, I remember thinking, one of my first things I ever read, I read some Rolling Stone interview with Randy, I think it was, or some interview where he talked about he'd written Lonely at the top for Frank. He wanted yep. Frank to record that. And the weird thing is, I it struck me as, yeah, but that's where like Randy was maybe right that he was too smart and funny for his own good. Because Frank doesn't want to sing a song like that. He no. would like... But the song I chose, I would love to have heard Frank Sinatra sing because I think the song I chose is one of his most like Tin Pan Alley, Brill Building, like not ironic, just it's just as if he were writing for like 
more, the more I think about it, it's like he and Carol King, two of the greatest of all time, mm-hmm. but even she had a lyricist most of the time, but like, this is like him. If he were in a cubicle there, instead of being this weirdo on the West coast, if he'd been a weirdo on the East coast, he would have written more songs like this, more yeah. of the, you know, it's like uh, this was, and he obviously wrote some, so, many songs that have been covered by many people, but this, this song is just uh, the idea of Randy. If Randy was, yeah, it's just an alternate universe. Like this is, uh, I could hear this being like the song that got Randy uh, a better cubicle at the Brill Building. Well, let's break the suspense. Nobody guessed it right. But no. what, what song are, are we discussing today? We're discussing uh, Living Without You. All right, folks, take a minute and listen to Living Without You off of Randy's first album. And we will be right back. God, Captain Races, sing this song. Do da, do da. My, it's, it's sort of connected to my music origin story and my randy origin story because i'm not quite sure of the order but my memory is as a kid my first concert was at carnegie hall it was a nitty-gritty dirt band the oh, country we're gonna talk nitty-gritty band. dirt band today yeah nitty-gritty dirt band and um and my dad my dad i think my dad left my mom <laughs> and got into bluegrass. But around that time, I think before my parents split up, they took us to Carnegie Hall to see Niggerty Dirt Band. And the opening act was a young comedian, then relatively young comedian, Steve Martin, who was oh about gosh. an hour from becoming, because William McEwen, uh, uh, Bill McEwen, who was John McEwen in the Niggerty Dirt Band's brother, and also managed Steve Martin and managed Niggerty Dirt Band, there was that connection. But it was like an hour or two, or just literally weeks before Saturday Night Live made Steve Martin a superstar. Mm. But, uh, but, you know, that's sort of, I think, how he broke out for many people. But in any case, that was my first show. And my dad had the Uncle Charlie and his dog Teddy album, which had Living Without You, their cover of it. And that was the first time I heard the song. And then I think it was shortly after that, in the wake of my parents' divorce, I went to a prep school, and I do remember hearing Little Criminals and Short People and going, my first reaction to Randy was, fuck you, on behalf of Short People. Right. But I also secretly loved the song, uh, and I liked the album, and then I do remember, yeah, so that was really where I became a fan of Randy, and then went back in my college years and bought the first record, which is where his first version of Living Without You appears. Yeah. But then I think in the over the college years, I got Nielsen sings Newman, which has this song, and in like it, it's like Randy's first version. It's orchestral, uh, but it's much. I, I actually I think the Nielsen version is unbelievable. It the, really is. It's, it's just gorgeous. one of the great songs on that great great album. Which Mickey Dolan's this year. There's a new Mickey Dolan sings Mike Nesmith record, which they have like a. It's sort of almost a tribute to that album cover. Of oh, it's a great cover. Songs. Yeah. It's a, a great cover. But I, I have to say for this show, I did go back and listen to some other Living Without Use, including I had never listened to the Manford Man version. That is a nuts. <laughs> which, was, which I thought was wild. And I kind of love, uh, yeah. but the, the one I really, I mean, the Nielsen and the Nitty Dirt Band version is because it's the first one I heard, that's the, like, in that whole sensitive singer-songwriter thing, I think Randy, this is a sensitive singer-songwriter song. It's sort of like, it's a heartbroken dude song. Uh, But Jeff Hanna, who, and his wife are, I'm sort of friendly with and Twitter in constant touch with, he's the guy who, you know, sings it with Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. I love that version. It's the sort of great vocal version then Nielsen sings his amazing vocal version and the guy in man for man can sing in a and it's it's not the same guy who sang like blinded by the light it's a a earlier lead singer because this is like i think it was the first song on the first man for man's earth band record ever i think the guy's name is rogers uh dave rock i I, but yeah i and i so this song it's weirdly not it's not like it was ever a big hit for anybody but it sort of has become a standard and randy put it on you know uh revisited it for the songbook so right it's and and it also has almost none of the qualities that 
when people talk about Randy, the ironic distance, the cleverness, the jokes, there's none of that in this. Oh, no, no. There are no jokes, but it's it is clever. Um, oh, it's, it's fantastic! You know that that that, that first line—that the milk truck hauls the sun up. I that that's it's just such a clever uh, way to talk about the sunrise. It reminds me of uh, when Tom Waits talking about leading the parade when, when the sun comes up. Oh, that's and, a great comparison. I actually think this song is like one of those uh, downtown train, like one of those. Uh, it has the same stripped down heartbreak uh uh elegance poetic poetic elegance of like a, a tom Waits song you were talking east coast west coast and and you know this has such a, a west coast I, such an east coast vibe it's it's got you know the subway shaking his floor and you know just th- things that would not be in his experience in la uh yeah, his well, his experience is really funny, and I've spoke. I spoke. I remember speaking to him a little bit about this. Like, he weirdly like this. He's very much tied in with the West Coast Mafia, like the Eagles and all that. Right. Yet, maybe that childhood split with the Louisiana and all that. He's sort of a man without a place. I mean, he looks awfully pale and pasty. He doesn't look like. You know, he's never, although he would put on a, like a Jimmy Buffett-ish shirt every once in a while for a video or whatever, he doesn't look like a a West Coast party boy. No, Uh, he doesn't. So I think he's, he's always been like, I think he's so one of a kind and treated like that with reverence. Like, you know, because I know if Katie was sitting there tweeting that, Katie Diamond, that means Neil was probably right next to her, like saying, my favorites are this. And like, from Neil Diamond to Bonnie Raitt, you bring up Randy, like, there is such love for him, because he doesn't, it's like, he didn't play the game. He doesn't even, his sense of humor very much extends to himself. So he's always the first to make fun of himself and his career and uh, his body of work and his ability to his marriage. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's so... Uh, and it's interesting that, like, I guess your show, like, when you have cool comedians on, you know, it's like, I, I, I think it, there aren't many songwriters where you could say, and you've asked people, like, is he an influence? But I think he's an influence on anybody who's ever tried to write with a, you know, any sense of irony. You know, he's sort of like yeah. one of those guys who introduced irony into a culture that didn't have much, like, I think in TV terms, Letterman was that like, he, yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, and in a weird way, like that's one of the, yeah, there's like a dividing line between the, the ironic generation, the pre ironic generations. And once, once you get that introduced, it's sort of like, it changes comedy. It changes, it changes everything. It definitely changes TV. It's like, you can't, uh, it's like Randy is, that's why Sinatra wasn't going to do lonely at the top because if, if Sinatra was ironic, he would do lonely at the top, but Sinatra wasn't ironic. You know, Sinatra was like of a different showbiz era where it's like, no, I'm going to give the people I'm going to write about love and, you know, life. And I'm going to do my way. I'm not going to uh, do lonely at the top. Is it just me or is there a Gershwin influence in this song? Especially Uh, in that second verse. Yeah. Well, that's actually what, when you said that I, I, I'm not, I'm not a scholar of, Gershwin I will say I just was telling my kids the other day a story that uh, I live in the Hollywood Hills and down from here that way I in around this time I think around you know I don't know if it was the late 90s or uh, maybe I don't know when she passed but I interviewed Rosemary Clooney for a magazine piece oh yeah and she at one point we were laughing and she was super funny and great. Uh, I, I did speak to George Clooney about her, you know, in the last couple of years, she she was just fantastic. But she, at one point she goes, you're funny. You know who you would have gotten along with great. And she goes, I don't know. She goes, my neighbor, Ira, my old neighbor, Ira, (laughs) uh, Ira who? And she goes, Ira Gershwin. She goes, he lived next door. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I would definitely like to meet. I would have liked to have met Ira. I also would have liked to have met his brother, George. Like, I, I'm, I'm not 
uh, an expert on any kind of non-popular music, but or non-rock era music. Right, I, right. I know my jazz a little classical. No, I'm not that strong. I did go see a Tchaikovsky at the Hollywood Bowl, but he wasn't there because he's dead. Uh, recently, uh, well, I was last weekend, but I did. Uh, I do love Gershwin. I, Rhapsody in Blue is one of my favorite pieces of all time. Yeah, and I did. When I said when I said Tin Pan Alley, I do feel that's like, uh, yeah, I do feel his the the education he got from the score work, scoring work of his uncles. You know, uh, he definitely that early early work was definitely you know it connects him forever with Gershwin. And it's interesting. I for this, I looked at my phone this morning and went to like Apple Music. I went on a morning walk uh, around the Hollywood Reservoir and I looked at Randy Newman on Apple Music, not on like iTunes or Apple Music and what songs were the most popular. And it is crazy. His career is nuts because you would think he'd only written Pixar songs. If you look at like, like the level of popularity of that stuff, because every kid is raised on it and it's, wonderful in its way but it is insane that to get to the best of randy newman you have to get through a lot of other songs that are his most popular and it's like he, yeah. he has complained about spotify's algorithm uh when he did the ucla interview a couple months ago he said you know i i, I pulled up randy newman radio on spotify and it's pulling up you know a lot of you know the uh the roger miller robin hood Oh score, really? Uh, which I, he says it, it takes a long time to get to my actual music on that radio stage. It, it you know, and no one makes fun of the indignities of uh, of this sort of stuff better than he does. Oh yeah, but yeah, no. So I, again, the truth is, I think I asked for what is my favorite Randy Newman song? It changes all the time. Like with Dylan, there's a couple artists like that who it's too deep a love to have it be one thing, but I always consistently, there's Baltimore, which I think you're doing with someone else. Coming up, you know, yep. uh, I love Baltimore. Oh, um, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and it, that, that it's interesting. Cause I think the time I'm discovering Randy, I've not, I've been, I've had a girlfriend I definitely was just like date and I'd gone on some dates. Like I'm, I'm pretty young at that point. So the love songs resonate with my, and this one living without you was probably like my, I'd lost, I'd broken up with my first girlfriend around that time. So that one, that's like a heartbreak song that even a callow youth can feel. Uh, but Baltimore was, I was like a spoiled suburban kid who spent time in cities and that song really hit me hard because it's like I had not experienced anything like poverty and urban blight and all that stuff that song made me feel it I I think that's the first time I sort of like I I, I, it sounds like a Randy Newman song I'm I'm like my life is good but I was like holy shit there's poverty and there's a sad bird (laughs) on a stoop and and there's like you know kids and not have you know i will that was like a big song for me in my awakening as a person yeah. uh, just like living without you is as a like about loss like heartbreak just really hit me hit me hard the uh, you mentioned the songbook uh when, when he does living without you in the songbook he drops it a couple of keys uh it's a, it's a it's a much lower thing and so that's the one that i heard first so that in, that in my mind was the standard version of Living Without You. Then when I got his, his first album, but uh, now it's also the one advertised right as like didn't Warner Brothers advertise it as a failure? Yeah, we're yeah we're going to talk about that in just a second. Okay, uh, but but the arrangement on this is I it's almost grating. He is really stretching you know the the limits of of how high he can sing. And well, that, you, that's a Van Dyke Parks arrangement, and it's... it's that makes so, sense. Yes, with, and that that album... No, and I don't love the first album, and I'm not choosing that recording of the song. Oh, okay. I'm actually choosing the song. <laughs> I think okay, you're not yeah. going to pick a song, and, like, I, I'm i choosing song in all its lives. Uh, mm-hmm. And 
I guess I like the songbook versions of almost everything. Is that's like when I've been on the phone with Randy or doing the interview show with Yeah, I, I feel like I'm in his living room during, right. during those hours. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, in fact, uh on a, a another digression, I will take you on. Today I listened on my way to my walk. I put in I bought yesterday a Laura Nero has a new live out there. Well, Laura Nero's been dead a long time, but they put out a new live record this last week or two. And that's like, I guess you you always, the the early artists that hit you always hit you. Like in Randy Newman, Laura Nero, Carol King, that that's the first stuff I ever heard usually. And like, I think my parents had Fifth Dimension on 8-track tape, which had like all those early Laura Nero songs they did like, and when I die and they did uh, save the country. So those were like some of the first songs I ever loved. And this Laura Nero album was just her in a piano in Japan in 1994. Mm. And it's one of the best live things I've ever heard. And you realize like when someone is good, they don't need a band, good band, you know, sometimes just the pure them is the right thing. And Randy, I think understands that. So it's like, Sometimes the best thing is not, it's great to have the Eagles singing Rider in the Rain or whatever, but sometimes if you love Randy, which is a, it's not a sure thing, but I do, sometimes just Randy <laughs> is the right way to do it. Yeah. W- one last thing I love about the composition of this, uh, he, he puts a really, really uh, difficult little thing here at the end of the chorus. You know, it's straight four, four time. And then the chorus builds and builds so hard, so hard, and gets to that last, last so hard living without you. It goes from one, two, three, four, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Right. And it's just, you know, as an amateur pianist, it drives me nuts because I don't have the skill to do something like that. But uh, it's just so... Uh, mathematically clever and it's so evocative and it's just I, I love those little things that he'll put in a composition like that it's interesting like and you take this you know from your show as a you take it from being a musician when I did that show musicians it was ironic one of the producers was a guitar player like who had done some session work and was really good and he was always on me to do it from a musician's point of view and I was always like First of all, I am not a musician. I am a professional lover of music, but I don't know shit about music. In fact, I'm often, I have often been described as musicologist David Wilde. I am so not a musicologist. I, I, I know a lot about people who've made music. Uh, and I think it's interesting. Randy uh, is kind of like, he'll tell you, I'm really good, but I'm not great, which is why I didn't go into you know, a different field of, of music. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way, I once interviewed uh, Elton John and Randy, I'm sorry, when Billy Joel and uh, and uh, Elton John were going on tour, like Billy Joel told me, I have one good hand as a piano player. Elton has two. And that's like the difference between he and I. And I, those distinctions are lost on me. I just know there's a sophistication to Randy's uh, yeah, Randy's songwriting that it, it has aged incredibly well. Like there are, there's, you know, and that's what sometimes the covers don't reveal. Sometimes the covers are less sophisticated, but often when you just hear him at a piano, you get a sense of how, how sophisticated his, 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 his piano is. Yeah. So let's talk about that ad that you mentioned. That, that came out uh, after, after this album. Um, and, you know, with, with Sinatra in the background, you know, can, yes. can talk about reprise and, and their marketing strategy. But I think this album sold like 30,000 copies. Which unfortunately today would, today would be okay. Yeah. But back then was, you know, it was, I guess, considered an abject failure. So what they, what they did is they, they released it with a different cover and put out a, a tongue-in-cheek ad saying, well, maybe it was the cover that scared you people away. Right. And then the, the new version didn't didn't go. And then they kind of leaned into that. They kind of leaned into it as uh, squares won't get this record. Well, But, I but mean, you real yeah. music people will get it. I think um, Warner Brothers, 
And I've actually spent time in the last couple of years with uh, Mo Austin, who was sort of, you know, running the, the world of that label. But there was a guy named Stan McCornin, who was like a legendary figure who I think did a lot of that, like the ads and the, uh, the marketing. And I think they were just like super ahead of their time meta kind of like Randy, they were more ironic and uh, sort of had a kind of genius for seeming like, you know, we're not the man, even though they were the man. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think Randy always is funny about that stuff. Cause I think it was, he goes, yeah, it was sort of humiliating. Uh, but the truth is having spoken to Ma Austin, even in recent years about Randy, he, they knew he was a one of a kind genius. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you don't, I think even when like they purged uh, at one point, like I think Bonnie Raitt and Van Morrison left the label. I think Lenny Warrenker and that relationship at Warner Brothers, they always knew that Randy was a one of a kind treasure. David and Caroline Stafford wrote a biography of Randy, which is, is fine. Someone, someone needs to write the definitive biography someday because there's a lot that they left out. Uh, but their theory is that Reprise w- kept Randy and Van Dyke Parks and Ry Cooter uh, as a way to show other artists we are an artist-friendly label. And they, and they say that that's how they got James Taylor to move from Apple, and that that's how eventually they got Elvis Costello, is that they had built this reputation of being artist-friendly. Yeah, I think that might be true. And yeah, I do think there might be something big coming on Randy, not by me, but I do think there might be something like that. Uh, His story is, he is unique. He really is. And uh, yeah, doing this podcast, I don't know if uh, you ever, the people who, you know, he's sort of almost like a great jazz artist and that the people who get him really get him. And yeah. Uh, and yet it's funny because it's not like he's obscure because having been in every Pixar movie, it's like everybody knows him. They just don't know the real him. Yeah. <laughs> they know it, it's almost like he lives at a few different layers and they're all him. But uh, yeah, I, th- I, I think it- I was shocked when I started putting this together, you know, a year or a year and a quarter ago uh, that nobody had done it. You know, because I, I know that, that a musician's musician and that there's so much, uh, you know, depth for people to talk to. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, his, his fans are passionate. So, some of them can't stand me because <laughs> what do I know about this? But, uh, but some of the, some people, uh, when they find this, they're like, uh, finally, someone else who gets it. Well, has Team Randy responded? I, I, I didn't ask permission to do this. I, I'm, I'm not on their radar now. Um, okay. So I, I, I know people who know him, but, you know, haven't heard anything official. He's got, he's got bigger things to worry about than me. Like life in the world. And- yeah. Well, you want to spin the wheel, David? Uh, sure. I, you tell me. I, I, I want to see the wheel. All I, right. I, Let's see if I can pull it up here. Do, 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 do. And folks, you can play Wheel of Randy at home. Just go to uh, our Twitter page and go to the pinned tweet, and you will see that big green wheel spinning there. Oh, my God. So uh, whenever you're ready, just yell stop and let me know what you land on. Spin the wheel, spin the wheel, spin the wheel. Stop. <laughs> okay. Landed on the girls in my life. Part one. Yes. Do you need, do you need a refresher? Do you need to listen? Or are you? Uh, I would like to listen again. Is that a chance? Yeah, let's do it. And folks, you can pause this and listen to the girls in my life. Part one. And we will be right back. Bet my money on a Bob town. day. I am very glad we got a song from Born Again because, like I mentioned, um, uh, Little Criminals was the first. That's where I came in. Mm-hmm. And so this was the first album I went out and bought in real time. Like, I remember going, I think I was at uh, a prep school, Loomis Chafee in Windsor, Connecticut. And I think I had to walk into town to find a record store 
didn't have a driver's license. Uh, so I walked in and bought this record. And uh, this record got a really rough reception because I think it, yeah. it, it, uh, people didn't quite get, even like the looking of Little Criminals, even though Short People was this big breakthrough hit, it sort of was confusing to people because he kind of looked, it looked like a regular album. This album had the Kiss, like Businessman as a Kiss star. And right. in, in retrospect, I think it was like having had short people become a hit, he got really into making unsympathetic, uh, male, uh, jerky uh, narrators of his songs. On this record, in particular, it's like it ends yeah, with... Yeah, there's some real monsters take, on yeah, this. Yeah, going to take off my pants is literally yeah. like he's sort of building towards going to take off my pants. And uh, it's money that it starts with. It's money that I'm going to love. Money that I love. Yeah. I happen to love a couple of songs, especially if I hadn't. In my top five is also a song called "Falling in Love" from the Land of Dreams yep. album, where uh, I think that's one of the ones that Jeff Lynne produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jeff Lynne, who I worked with a fair more even than Randy, uh, uh, like I always talk to both of them about the fact that like. There's that story of a rock and roll band, which sounds like he's just being a douche about ELO. <laughs> like, like <laughs> he hates you. And and the weird thing is, like Randy said, he's like, no, I always loved ELO. Like the because I was just jealous. Uh, but the fact that he ended up like collaborating, and Jeff was like, oh yeah, he tells me he liked me. You know, it's like it's super funny to me that eventually, as time goes on, all these things get blurred. But the opposite of that is that I hear in Randy's work a lot of the sort of like, you know, the sensitive singer songwriters to whom he's often compared or sort of an accessory to. uh, The truth is that a lot of them in history were not that sensitive. Only they were only sensitive to their own needs. Like, uh, you know, Bing uh, Crosby. Well, there's, uh, there's too many to mention, but a lot of them have gotten in trouble in different ways. And I think Randy was really early in writing about, men being creepy about women and like and and he may have done it often for comic effect or ironic effect but i think he really was writing about the creepier sides of the male uh romantic drive and this song the girl you know girls of my life which i really like hearing it again uh, i haven't heard it in a little while but it's actually and it has the feel of one of his like earlier movie things like yeah. almost like the ragtime uh yeah yeah kind of musical vibe but it does it it shows to me that randy always had an eye on like you know what's weird is he's kind of like a low-key moralist i think he's making fun of men and god god knows being a man in rock and roll and being on the road and being going through marriages and being divorced and all that. I'm not, I'm not saying he seems like he's, I don't know how pure he was, but I have having dealt with him. He's always been an incredibly nice and generous human one-on-one in my experience. Uh So when he writes about what a bastard he is in different ways, or it's money that I love, you know, I, I think he finds a way of writing about the parts of ourselves that we hate, you know, and making fun of them and also in a weird way celebrating them. But I actually like that song more thinking about there weren't a lot of guys in, you know, most guys writing in that era of music would be was I'm a rambling man and I got no time for you, young lady. This is him like writing about what a douche most men are when it comes to women. Uh, And And, and, and it's not even like, uh, it, it, it's not even like the, this guy has 40 or 50 women under his belt. He can still no. be a douche even if he's not got game. Right, exactly. Yeah, I just think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's a funny song. Uh, I, maybe that's what the, if you look at that album, it's like, maybe it's an album about the psychological world of your average male in the 70s. That looks like, like, it's always like, I always thought that album cover was like saying like, yeah, like every white dude working in an office in the middle of nowhere thinks he's a rock star. Yes. And in his own, we're all rock stars in our own head. So I think he used, you know, the sort of 
consumerism, the shallowness of like the kiss dream. Right. I think he just like captures that in that album. Uh, and yeah, I think it's an album. There's very little love for the record. There was very little love at uh, the time. It's very easy to find in the used record section. Yes. Still, you think? Oh yeah, because they because after uh, after Little Criminals went gold, they printed a ton of these. Right. It's just everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I I tend to like records after there's some uptick because they're always fascinating in what they reveal yeah and i do think like in you can now go back and listen to it and think yeah like you know in, in his head was he thinking like uh i gotta be more like elo so then he writes a crazy song about like yeah the story of a rock and roll band that's a crazy song yeah uh mr sheep i think he may have i don't remember liking that one that much and pants was just a little disturbing pants is uh, yes uh, everyone everyone wants the wheel to land on pants but nobody has the courage to say that's the song i want to pick <laughs> yeah uh i i all i remember is that line i, I have to go back and that's, that's pretty much all it is yeah yes yeah won't you don't you <laughs> yes uh i've been married 27 years i do love the funny that he's able to comment on male bad behavior in a way that is I, I think actually has some moral clout but also is actually has a sense of humor like yeah. I think his point is he writes about the human comedy which is both dramatic and comedic I mean he writes about our human frailties I I, I don't want to get too deep for a podcast but no like, no I like that. I I do think it's sort of like that era uh I recently uh, I, I did lose an Emmy to Norman Lear two years ago, and I've, uh, I have love Norman Lear, and I had interviewed him. I'd written for Rolling Stone once in a Rolling Stone book of the 70s about all in the family. And there was that weird era in the 70s, and I think in film and in television, where you could write about, there was that weird time where a comedy, like all in the family, would deal with racism and sexism and, you know, all sorts of rough issues in a way that was like, you, so you could have like literally a big laugh and then Arthur Miller-like moment of pathos. And yeah. I think in a weird way, that's what Randy was. That he at, In that 70s era, he was a guy who managed to, you know, I, I think a record like uh, his first, his 70s records are kind of like um, all the family of rock and roll. They're there's there there's big laughs and there's tears and there's an ability to write about anything he wants uh, yeah. and uh, uh, I think he I I like Norman Lear a lot I happen I, I don't think Norman Lear's written anything as good as I think it's going to rain today <laughs> or uh, uh, but maybe I'm just more of a musical person you know uh, I that's one of the things that's one of the reasons I do I love Randy is that I think it's kind of, and I don't, I'm not diagnosing him or myself, but there's like a manic depressive quality where it's like, it's funny as hell and also can feel like hell. He can capture hell uh, and be funny as hell, which is, there's almost no songwriters that can do either of those things, but he does both. He does. Well, the next thing we're going to do is this week's cover. cover yes and there this week's cover when it comes to living without you is a real candy store you know you had talked about uh nitty-gritty dirt band which i and, and manford man and i'll put links to this for for everyone listening we have you know barbara streisand did uh, a lovely version of it uh do any any of these stand out as ones that that, that you'd really recommend to people well, what's, one of them is by a friend of mine. <laughs> so oh. that's uh, I'm not Mandy Potemkin. Not a, I've met him, but he's not a friend of mine. Uh, Curtis Steigers, uh, who was a pop star and then became a sort of jazz, has become a jazz uh, star in the sort of vocal jazz world. Uh, uh, he did it early in his sort of jazzier career, it looks I'm like. I'm not familiar with that. So I will, I will have and, to. Uh, by the out. way, the album, the song there is Secret Heart. That's Ron Sexsmith, who is a recent guest. Yeah. That's what that's maybe Ron Sexsmith's most 
familiar song that we're seeing on that Curtis also did. Well, I will definitely recommend that. And folks, we will put a link to that up. One thing that really surprised me on this is that uh, the, the George Winston song, Living Without You, is, is a variation on this. Now, I will go to my grave defending George Winston. I will lose my cool friends in defense of George Winston. But I had listened I, to I, I, I have a Wyndham Hill in my heart. There uh, you so, go. No. Yeah. I, 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 I had listened to, to this. You know, I bought Summer the week it came out, and I've listened to this a hundred times. I never made the connection that George Winston's Living Without You was even remotely a variation on Randy Newman until I, until I listened to it today, listening for it. Yeah, George Winston, that's, that's the cool thing about, like, that is a guy who literally just has made his, his artistic, made his artistic imprint at the piano and yeah. find mu- musical depth that you could explore in Randy's work. That's like, uh, yeah, he ain't doing Desperado, you know, sure the Eagles outsold Randy, but uh, he's doing uh, his, his, his take. Yeah, we will uh, put Curtis's cover up for, for everyone to listen to. David, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for doing this. What, what's the best way for people to, uh, to connect with you? Uh, Twitter is the best. Uh, it, it's at Wild About Music. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. Uh, I'm Wild About Music Guy. But uh, for some reason, my following, like the former presidents, were mainly on Twitter. <laughs> I, 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 I somehow, uh, and it's interesting, like the way I think, uh, the way you must have found me was um, I discovered through a friend telling me I had to hear to the Dead Eyes podcast and then oh, with Connor um, Ratliff. Yeah. With Connor Ratliff. So it's like, uh, and the fact that Neil Diamond or at least Neil's wife was like immediately responding late night when I tweeted about what's my favorite Randy Newman song. Wild about music. And uh, gosh, I sure appreciate it. And uh, just thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, I, and, and, and we'll see if we pissed anybody off, but until then, it's my pleasure. Going out the science, yeah, blowing out the snow, yeah, blowing out the night, yeah, you're a puppet rock and roll. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Wheel of Randy. We are part of the Good Trash Media Network. Thank you to our guests today, and thank you to all my listeners. It means the world to me that you guys spend some time listening to us do this. Our artwork was created by Brian Mays. You can check him out on Facebook at Brian Mays Art. Thanks to Matt Farley at Moturn Media for most of our bumper music. You can reach him at Moturn Media. That's M-O-T-E-R-N Media. And chances are he's got a song about anything you can imagine. So check him out. Good stuff. Thank you to Alex Sanchez for our Pod of Second Chances theme. Thank you to Good Trash Media for continuing to host us and continuing to promote us and retweet us. Our opening and closing background music is the one and only Bob Cribby, Avalanche Bob himself. You can check his music out at avalanchebob.bandcamp.com. Thank you very much to his producer, Sam Kogon, for being so cool about letting us use Bob's music. We miss you, Bob. High power, snow power, to the stars, protect the earth. You'll notice we no longer have a sponsor. That's both for legal reasons and because our previous sponsor has gotten so much work, presumably from this show, that he doesn't need to advertise. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. It's Wheel of Randy.